Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is the first in our season four and is a conversation with Peter Linneman. Peter is well known in the industry as the now retired long-term head of the real estate program at the Wharton School, as well as the principal at Linneman Associates, a leading real estate advisory and consulting business. As you will experience from the interview, Peter is justifiably one of the most respected thinkers in the real estate industry and has made a significant contribution to the business as we know it today. I started in the real estate business in the early 1980s, still when the industry was driven by tax syndications. I lived through the famous 1986 Tax Reform Act and then the SNL crisis, and out of that our industry was reborn and transitioned from what I call a cowboy back-of-the-envelope business into a modern institutional business. You've heard about that transition many times, actually, on Leading Voices, through the stories of folks like Sam Zell, Gerald Hines, Ron Terwilliger, and the emergence of the REITs as institutional operators. You will hear that story again on this episode, but this time told by Peter, who came to this industry as a total outsider economist and who saw its obvious future in information, transparency, and capital flows. Peter tells the story from his perch at Wharton, where he learned from and then counseled the giants in the industry as well as then teaching the future leaders. There are always topics that we do not get to with guests on the podcast. With Peter, we did not get to what I understand to be his side passion, which is the Save a Mind, Give a Choice program that Peter started as part of the Lua Foundation, which provides educational scholarships to children in Kenya. If you enjoy the podcast today, go to Peter's website at Linneman Associates, where there's a link to contribute to his important work there. We are happy to be back with Season 4 of Leading Voices. As I said in the intro to Season 4 a few weeks ago, we'll be releasing new interviews on the first and third Mondays of every month. We have a great lineup of guests scheduled, and we will continue to explore people and businesses across the real estate landscape. I want to thank my colleagues here at Terra Search Partners who allow me to take time away from my day job in the search business to host the podcast. This, as longtime listeners know, is a passion project where, quite frankly, I've had the chance through these interviews to turbocharge my lifelong learning about the business generally and to dive deep into the different pathways to and models of leadership. I want to thank my guests and thank you listeners for giving me this wonderful opportunity. If you're enjoying Leading Voices, several requests. Please subscribe. Share your favorite episodes with friends. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. We get more listeners as we get more ratings. Visit our firm at Terra Search Partners and email me if you have comments or questions at matt at I hope that you enjoy the episode with Peter Linneman. Peter, greetings and thank you for joining us on Leading Voices in Real Estate. I am thrilled to have you on the show. In Leading Voices, we talk to leaders from across the sectors, nooks and crannies, and perspective all across the real estate industry. And most of the conversations focus in on a niche or a product type or an aspect of the business. I think today's conversation is going to go broad since... For your 40-year career, you've been one of the broadest thinkers in the industry. 
Well, I've certainly been broad. I don't know if I've been thinking, but I'll take your word for that. <laughs> well, actually, let's start there. And I want to kind of talk about your career a little bit before we talk about kind of thoughts. But maybe just to start this off, think of when you came into the real estate industry, say, 40 years ago. What was it that you found? And then take the long view of the changes between then and now. And what are the big shocks, changes, surprises, and We'll drill down on it, but maybe give us some perspective on that. Sure. Let me take one little step back. So I'm trained PhD economics, University of Chicago, Milton Friedman, Gary Becker, and George Stigler, and all these people who won Nobel Prizes, studied under them, and you know had them on my thesis committee and mm-hmm. so forth. And I thought I'd be a pretty traditional economist, whatever that means. And started at the University of Chicago on the faculty and then came to Wharton School in 1979, joined the faculty there. And I was a sort of traditional economist in my interest. But in 1986, we had had a new dean, a spectacular man by the name of Russ Palmer. And he had surmised that what Wharton was doing in real estate at that time was like having a flea market between 54th and 58th on Fifth Avenue. I mean, you had this great franchise, but what we were doing was an embarrassment. Mm -hmm. And I had nothing to do with it. I knew nothing about real estate at that time. And in fact, the people involved in the real estate program were not very high quality, I'm being kind, and the students were, but the program was nuts. And you just kind of stayed away. When you joined in 79, you're an economist, not a real estate economist. It's not part of your you practice. You got it. You got it. Got it. Okay. And in fact, if anything, there's an interesting little twist. I was an economist with two focus. One would be on the general workings of the economy, and the second was on industrial organization. And of course, it 40 years ago, industrial organization focused on issues like the transformation from a manufacturing economy to a service economy Mm -hmm. and the kind of things that were evolving. And I was actually doing consulting on antitrust issues and on industry structure issues, you know, for the paper industry, for Michelin Tire, for companies like that. And I was real happy. And the new dean said, I'm going to either kill the program at Wharton or grow it. And I trust you to look at it because you don't have any vested interest in it. Mm. And tell me which I should do. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, it was a, I mean, he, to his credit, had respect that I knew how to analyze things and that I had no vested interest in it one way or the other. I was unassociated with it, completely unassociated with it, knew nothing about it. And I looked at it and I came back. I looked at it the same way I'd look at when I started learning the tire industry for Michelin or for Scott Paper when I learned the paper industry. And what I quickly assessed, this was actually 1985, was that highly underprofessionalized business mm-hmm. involving literally billions and billions and trillions of dollars right. around the world with some people who were pretty professional but by and large not professional at all now one footnote to remember is that if you go back to the banking and finance business 
in the previous 15 years, it had gone from a largely unprofessionalized business Mm -hmm. to being extremely what you and I would call professionalized. They did real analytics. It wasn't just going to the bar and hanging out and selling a corporate bond. It wasn't just being a country club member and selling a muni, right? It had changed dramatically in the previous 15 years by deregulation and junk bonds and and takeovers and all that kind of stuff. So I had just witnessed this transformation of a big sector that had suddenly become of huge importance Mm -hmm. to business schools, which was this finance and investment sector, which had light years changed. And Wharton had been at the frontier of professionalizing that industry. Mm-hmm. Mike Milken was an alum and so forth. Many others though, right? And I, I just had witnessed that. And I went back to Dean after studying this saying, look, we got a lot of alums who are in the business. It's a massively underprofessionalized business. We're in the business of being in the vanguard of professionalization. And I don't know when it's going to occur, but it's going to occur in real estate. Has to. Too much money involved. Can't avoid professionalizing. Right. Mm -hmm. And he said, thank you. And two or three months later, he came back and said, great, why don't you lead that effort for us? I said, well, I don't know anything about real estate. Mm -hmm. I know nothing. I had been involved in one LBO for a water heater manufacturer where I'd helped structure a sale lease back. But that was a pure financing vehicle, right? right? It was real estate, but it was, you know, just purely a financing vehicle. I said, I don't know anything. Mm -hmm. He said, that's fine. You're a smart enough guy. You'll figure it out. Why don't you do it? And I was kind of bored at the time with some of the things I was doing or not doing as the case was. And I said, okay, fine. But I have to have the ability to reach out to some of the people who really do know what's going on and are professional in the industry. And I have to be able to go out and touch base. And I said, you know, we'll get rid of whatever you want to get rid of and we'll go whatever direction you want to go. And I'm with you. Now, he didn't give me money to do it, but he uh-huh. gave me support. And so I went to Alfred Taubman, rest his soul, right. an amazing man, and Bill Simon, rest his soul, and Dan Galbraith, and Claude Ballard. And it's like the who's who of the industry who's now deceased, but Gene Cohn of Cohn, Pedersen, Fox. These were guys who were really at the vanguard of a non-professional industry, but they were quite professional. And there were about 20 of them. Right. Most of them weren't alums. Most of them didn't have kids there, but they were interested in their industry. They were interested in education. And over the next four years, we started from ground zero. It was really like a development project where you say, okay, what do we got? Let's tear down what doesn't work. You have to destroy the building. You have to destroy the courses that existed because they were disaster. You had to get rid of the people who were there. They were a disaster. You can imagine, same way as when you tear down that building to build the new building, the people mm-hmm. don't like it that you tore it down, uh-huh. but had to do it. Let me ask two questions. One historic context, because you're talking about 86 to 90, if that's the four-year period of time. and That's, that's about right. That's about and right. And that coincides with huge changes in the industry because of the 86 Tax Act. So that's number one. Absolutely. And I'm also getting lost in the things you're saying, because I'm imagining you're describing we're tearing apart the industry and transforming how the industry functions versus tearing apart your curriculum and your teachers and how it's transformed. But I think both were happening at the same time. Both were happening. Both were happening. 
And the tax law change was critical because it said gimmicks don't work. You have to function like a normal industry, more or less. Mm-hmm. Because until then, it was all these tax gimmicks, right? right? And you didn't have to be professional. You just had to be good at the tax gimmicks. Suddenly, when that's gone, you began, and you're dead on, you began the journey to become a normal industry. And at the same time, the finance industry is changing. Banking is starting to consolidate, so not everybody has a friendly local lender. And you start getting these changes. Well, that played to my strength. Mm -hmm. Namely, I knew industrial organization issues. I knew how other industries were organized, whether it was the paper industry, the steel industry, the bag industry. So it played to my strengths. And these guys had a real vision, and they were willing to put in the time to think about what their industry should look like, what it could look like, and what the people trained for it should look like. What are the research questions that that new industry faces? Right. There was a second event that was critical, which is the collapse of 1991, because that was like the capitulation. So the tax law, you're right, changes in 85, but takes effect 86. And the capitulation, if you will, the old South is dead, if you will, really was 1991. And that was an immense challenge to keep focus. But It was clear that it also was the great opportunity of capitulation of the old regime, if you will, in every way, both at the university and externally. Wall Street starts becoming much more relevant. All the things you would – training, analysis, all starting to become more relevant. And we are good at that. We are good organizationally. My advising group was spectacular at it. And – The industry was open to adopting it because they needed it. And that's what we did. And I'm proud to say one of the greatest achievements of my professional career is being a critical part of the professionalizing the industry. And when you come back 30-whatever years later, no one knows. It's like, who invented the shovel, Uh right? Nobody knows who invented the shovel. Nobody cares. It's just that it became an important tool, right? In a funny way, we were in the vanguard of professionalizing the industry, which we now take for granted. That was not what existed by and large in the industry when I first viewed it. And talk about the difference between that, because you're teaching people, and that takes five years before they move into the system and affect the system, but you're also consulting with the CEOs as a thinker. Describe the difference between the industry changing and you're changing the young people who are coming into it. Well, it was also one of the great advantages of my career in that because these leaders were so kind and generous in teaching me, I learned the business from Mal Taubman and Mel Simon and Mort Zuckerman, and they were just kind, and they were the leaders. And so they taught me, and I'm a good student. And so I had these connections at a quite young age with those guys and their lieutenants. And yet, as you point out, I also had the new Vanguard, who grew up to be Jeff Blau of Related Company. And John Gray wasn't my student, but was out of our program. And mm-hmm. Adam Schwartz and Angelo Gordon. And you kind of go through a lot of these places. 
and you go, whoa, those were my early kids. And so I had this unusual phenomenon of the very top of the very best and among the very best of the next generation or so. Mm-hmm. There are those moments when you ask yourself, why would some of these people be asking me for advice? So if you go back to the late 80s and then into the early 90s, why were they asking my advice? And you'd look around the room saying, what the hell do I know that these guys don't know? What it turned out I knew, they knew shopping center design. They knew shopping center leasing. They knew office building design far better than I would ever know it. But they didn't know the organizational issues. They didn't know the incentivization issues. They didn't know the capital market issues because they never had to deal with them. Uh I dealt with them in the bag industry. I dealt with them in the water heater industry. I dealt with them in the steel fabrication industry. So there was like an intellectual arbitrage I could bring to the table for those people. Also, you're an outsider. You had no history. And I was an outsider. Which really, really helps. Was huge. Was just huge, right? It's not like we had the perfect model. But you can imagine if you were starting a program at another university, the first thing you did was look at us and say, what are they doing? What can we do differently to fit us? How do we do? And so it's had this enormous knock-on effect. And then a lot of them would reach out and say, what do you think we ought to do? So I had this consulting. And in 90, I don't know, 92 or something, I go on Rockefeller Center's board, which was a public REIT that ultimately owns Rockefeller Center. It was very complex. And I actually become chairman of it. Pete Peterson, and Ben, who was founder of Blackstone, and mm-hmm. Ben Holloway, who at that time was chairman of the Equitable, and a couple of others, they actually chose me to be chairman. You go like, I'm young. These guys are real people. And so I got to be involved in the largest real estate transaction up to that point in history of New York City as chairman of the process and leading the sale and restructuring and so forth. And that was an unbelievable learning experience that took me into the decision-making shoes. Mm-hmm. So I'd been in the teaching shoes, the organizing programs and research shoes and consulting shoes, but suddenly I was also a decision maker. And so again, it was a part of an evolution. And then that evolution has carried me through today. I've served on about 20 corporate real estate boards over the years and advise a bunch of clients over the years, private equity and sovereign and developers and people trying to professionalize their firms. And we have a boutique investment vehicle, has a couple hundred million of capital. We try to do very boutique stuff Mm -hmm. and also advise people and still publish. I stopped teaching at Wharton. Well, I believe I stopped teaching at Wharton about eight years ago. I suspect there are students who would say I stopped teaching 10, 15 years ago, (laughs) but at least they still paid me to, to teach. Let's put it that way. So I haven't done that the last eight years. I continue to do the publication. I continue to do the advisory. I continue to do the kind of principal side in a boutique way. Oh, of course. That's a huge story and interesting where you started with the conversation. Let's go back a little bit just so we get a sense of you, and then we'll come back and talk about some of the meaning of all this for real estate. But you grew up in Ohio. Kind of talk about that a little bit, and then what drove you to become an economist? So I grew up in a place called Lima, Ohio, Uh 50 years ago. Neil Armstrong, the astronaut, came from the agricultural fringe, first man on the moon. I still remember vividly when I'm 18 years old 
sold his walk on the moon. It would now be called a Rust Belt city, but when I'm there, it wasn't rusted yet. It was Ford, Westinghouse, Standard Oil of Ohio, U.S. Right. Steel, Thriving part Superior Coast. And in fact, there was an interesting Rockefeller connection. It was the location of John David Rockefeller's first refinery. Hmm. And so years later, when I become chairman of Rockefeller Center, I'm talking to David Rockefeller, who I succeeded. And very different background, let's say. I came from a blue-collar family in a blue-collar town and so forth, right? And his grandfather was the founder of Standard Oil, right. right? And we laughed in that both of our fathers worked for Standard Oil of Ohio. Mine was a laborer <laughs> and his was the chairman. And we both went to the University of Chicago and got PhDs in economics. But that's about where the backdrop overlap ended. That's but, a wonderful um, American story. I had an amazing woman by the name of Lucille Ford, who's now almost 98 and mm -hmm. still a very dear friend, who was a pretty amazing woman. She was on five Fortune 500 corporate boards in addition to being a faculty member and such back in the day. And she took a wonderful interest in me. And in fact, the next week I go out and spend some time with her in a program we support there. But she's one of my great life friends over the last 50 years, mm -hmm. traveled with me. And she said, when I'm in college, you have a pretty good propensity at economics. You ought to think about it. I said, okay. Remember, I grew up in a blue collar family. Right. So you didn't think that way. I thought about going to college. I didn't know what it would mean, but I went to college, put myself through college. Mm -hmm. Actually, I put myself through high school, private high school. It wasn't so expensive, but you know, did. That was in the old days where you had a newspaper route when you're 12 mm -hmm. and you made money and you did. can't do that stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. Very different world. But I went to the University of Chicago, which at that time was one of the two top programs right. in the country. And it was just transformative. It was just transformative. And my wife and I went, this was back when my wife and I had met first day of college, and we've been married now 46 years. And mm -hmm. That again is an old Americana kind of story. It's, it's a, a great story. Wouldn't happen today. And we went out to Chicago and it was like walking through hell naked. But I'm pretty competitive, and it was a competitive – it played to my strength of being very competitive. I may not have been smarter than everybody in the program, but there was nobody more competitive than me and more energetic than me. Two or three questions. One is you're surrounded by Nobel Prize-winning economists. Two is there's something called yeah. the Chicago School of Economic Thought. I don't know what that means. Right. And then three right. is it's walking through hell, and you're naked, and you're competitive. So – Pull that together, and what did that mean? How was it transformative? So I went to a non-prestige college. Right. There's nothing wrong with it. It was just one of those thousands of colleges, the 2,500 students, and, and I got a good education because I was, quote, smarter than most students and more energized. And then I go to University of Chicago, though, from this non-prestige right. school, and you have all these people from Princeton and Yale and Stanford and mm -hmm. name them, and this guy. And if you'd have been handicapping, I'm not trying to suggest I'm not intelligent and didn't have good grades, but come on, you would not have handicapped me. Mm -hmm. And the going through hell naked was, for example, I started working as a research assistant for a faculty before I began as a student. And that was good. And I met a couple of students who were in their 
second year, just ready to start their second year of the PhD program and said, okay, what do I need to know? Well, there were about 65 of us that were PhD students. And it was known that about 10 of you were going to finish. It was mm-hmm. look to your left, look to your right kind of thing. It was by design. Mm-hmm. And the Chicago school, if it's about anything, was in its prime at that point, And it was about the importance of competition and the importance of markets. And one of the things was instead of picking 12 students out of whom 10 will make it, we're going to pick 60 or 65 and they'll decide which of them are going to make it. Still the same, only 10 are going to make it, but they're going to decide which rather than an admission committee. And it reflected George Stigler and Milton Friedman underlying belief that they could identify candidates, but they couldn't identify them that well. And that competitiveness which was an underpinning of the Chicago school, is a huge factor. Well, I was a competitive guy. And so... So it's built into their economic theory as well as how they structure the program. At that time. So then I took those first-year courses, but I took them, most of the classes, there were two sections, one taught by Friedman, for example, one taught by Gary Becker, who wins a Nobel Prize. Well, I'd take both of them, one for credit, one not for credit, but I'd go to both of them mm-hmm. as if I was really taking them. You couldn't take the exam in both, but, and I did that in all the courses. And so I'm doing 90 hours a week plus working about 10 hours a week, right. but I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And so I was fortunate to be among the people who passed, and I did that all the way through. And so the going through Hell Naked was trying to catch up with a lot of the mathematical Mm -hmm, stuff mm -hmm. and so forth that some of the Yale guys had. But I just hadn't because that wasn't the nature of the school. It turns out Friedman's view is right that competition overcomes a lot. It can't overcome everything. You know, I can't go guard... Joel Embiid, no matter how competitive I am, that's not going to work. 68 years old and 6'3 with two artificial hips, even if I'm in decent shape, that's not going to work. But if you get within relative skill sets and you get within competition, generally brings out the best in people and competition generally allows the cream to rise to at least their top. And so that was a great experience. And I had the good fortune of Milton Friedman, who was extraordinary, was there for three of my years. Mm-hmm. I got to know him quite well. Gary Becker goes on one Nobel Prize I was very, very close with, passed away a couple of years ago. George Stigler won Nobel Prize, was on my committee. A guy named Jim Heckman. So let me ask a question. Of the things that you learned, you learned competition. I kept writing down the word hard work because it totally linked yeah. everything you said. But what are the takeaways that stuck with you from maybe an economic theory standpoint that fit when you came to Wharton and you reinvented the real estate industry? That's big words. But what were the strands of that that came forward? Okay, so there were two. Mm-hmm. One is that in what was the phrase, history may not repeat itself, but it sure rhymes. Mm -hmm. There was a view that not every industry organizes the same, not every economy runs the same, but there are some similar themes Uh that you can identify. Uh That was a huge benefit as I start trying to deal with the real estate industry. And as I dealt with other industries before that, and what you looked for was the common threads, but having identified the common threads, you could pick up the unusual, the specific threads. 
And that was a great skill. It's not that competition is perfect. It's that government is probably even more imperfect because of a lack of set of incentives and people are just people. Mm -hmm. That was an important lesson that's colored my thinking. So I still remember Milton Friedman saying one time, and he was dead serious. He said, Anytime you hear somebody say the government needs to do or the government should do, mm-hmm. change the word government mm-hmm. to some omnipotent, all-knowing, and benevolent being. Mm-hmm. And the sentence will not change its meaning. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting. So one of the last things I put on my list just to talk about it, because we're on the eve of rent control in California, and economists hate rent control as I believe they should, but- I think of the word guardrail instead of government. I'm a guardrail guy. Maybe the government should set some bumpers around which we behave within the bumpers. That's a different way to look at it. Yep. Maybe they're good bumper setters, not good business people. They're much better. I think that's a good insight. They're much better at limiting extreme behavior. Absolutely. So that describes the Chicago school and then coming to Wharton. And let's catch back up to the story we were telling before about during the late 80s to the mid 90s as the real estate industry is transforming itself into this professionalized industry that we discussed. Maybe talk about the two, three, four trends around that, maybe securitization, REIT world. But how did you see the real estate industry get to this different place? Describe the place it got to, because we started with a place where it wasn't yet. Two things. Mm -hmm. A belief in the value of information. And second, people training them, being trained to both gather information and evaluate information. Those were in massive shortage in the industry, not non-existent but in massive short supply in the industry when we began. The notion of information and the value of information and how to analyze it. Now, by the way, you still make mistakes. Information's still imperfect, but there was sort of a benign disinterest in information. And even if you had it, you didn't analyze it. And even if you did, you really weren't very good at analyzing it. And you compared that to, I had done some work for Michelin in the tire industry. Mm -hmm. Well, they were very good at analyzing traffic patterns, usage patterns. If this type of tire is used versus that, do you get more mileage? How's the cost? Those things were huge in the tire industry. And you just wouldn't find them at that point in time in all but a couple of organizations in the real estate. Today, you would go to most organizations Mm -hmm. and you'd find that. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an overnight change that took 30, 35 years. Mm -hmm. But you can think about it. It's about two to three generations, right? The first generation are the pathfinders. The second generation is training the next generation. And now you're to a generation where you're not only getting it at school, you're getting it as soon as you get to work. That person was trained by somebody, and it just keeps pushing it forward. Mm -hmm. And talk about the difference when you mentioned these guys who you sat at the laps of to learn this industry. They did their business by gut instinct and some kind of, I know it when I see it, brilliance. 
I want to say back of the envelope, but that wasn't part of it. Their gut instinct knew where a good piece of dirt was. Their gut instinct knew where to put them all, how to do them all, whatever that was. And I also associate that with the cowboys, right? But think of yep. that entrepreneur, cowboy, gut instinct person versus the information person. Do they coexist or were they supplanted? Some of both. So if you go back to the Al Taubmans and the Jerry yep. Hines, I'm not trying to exclude anybody. I'm just, if you think about it, those guys recreated the real estate industry in the United States. And you say, how? Well, prior to the Great Depression, in World War II, there were people building high-rises. There were people building buildings. There were people doing a lot of buildings of different types. But during the Depression in World War II, none got built. Mm-hmm. None, mm-hmm. right? A few military kind of things, right? But nothing got built. Yes, Rockefeller Center got finished in the Empire State, but I'm talking in general, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing got built. Therefore, there was a generation that came of age that never got trained. There were no jobs. There were no place to learn on the job. And then World War II ends and the industry has demand suddenly, Mm -hmm. but nobody got trained. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not even talking about the university. I'm talking on the job training because for 18 years, there was just no work Mm -hmm. in the area. Mm -hmm. It became a self-trained area, if you will, with a few exceptions. And some of them were really good at self-training, like Al Taubman, like Jerry Hines, like you go through some others, right? Mm-hmm. And some of them weren't good self-trained, but somebody had to do it so they could succeed, mainly because the competition wasn't that difficult, mm-hmm. right? And the demand was that high. And the others succeeded a bit more, mm-hmm. but you can only do so much. And those guys that did it well mm-hmm. really recreated a lost art. And then they began it and then really used our program and then subsequently a lot of other programs to speed up the feeding of theirs and other organizations to be professional again. And, and interestingly, the business was probably more professional in the 1920s than it was in the 1950s. Interesting in the 1960s because Uh of this lost 18 years from the depression and World War II. Uh And it also explains the cowboyness of it in a way. By the way, that's very different than manufacturing. In manufacturing, especially during World War II, lots of guys got trained in mass manufacturing, right? Yes, they were turning out bullets, but all those process management kind of things that a manufacturer would do, they were doing for bullets and jeeps and planes Mm -hmm. so that when they went back to a peacetime economy, they knew how to do that. They didn't know the product, but they knew how to do it. That wasn't true in real estate. It just wasn't true. Right. So the technology of institutionalization, large organizations and management, which MBA programs know about, that was evolving while real estate took a hiatus. That let the cowboys be the ones who led the business. What you're describing to me now is that maybe the cowboys' businesses then became based on a foundation of information as they grew because you developed that foundation. And a cowboy can only generally go so far without getting disciplined. You see this in the tech field, right? There's cowboys in the tech field, and they can have a great breakthrough, but they can only usually go so far without professionalizing their organization. And you've seen it at Google, and you've seen it at Microsoft a generation or so before. 
and you saw at Apple, mm-hmm. and you saw that there were a whole bunch who never got it professionalized. They just never got there. They never were able to make that transition. Uh-huh. This was the real estate business. And the fact that it was local and everybody had a local banker, there are no local banks left, right? right? But back then, there were local banks. Uh-huh. There's a phrase that I kind of quietly say, I think I actually coined the phrase that everybody uses now. And in the early 90s, I started using this phrase when I'd give speeches and in my classes that real estate's just a very capital-intensive business, like steel and like other capital-intensive businesses. Well, that phrase had never been used. If you think about it, that phrase was nothing more than an old industrial organization. Is it a labor-intensive business? Is it a knowledge-intensive? Is it well, real estate was clearly capital-intensive, and therefore you would have to always figure out how to attract capital in large amounts. And as capital markets evolved, real estate had to evolve. And as capital markets became more sophisticated, real estate had no choice but to become more sophisticated. So let's talk about that, because we've been talking a lot about what it wasn't and how it had to change. And so I'm going to use four or five different terms here, because since that time, the REITs became dominant. CMBS and securitization became dominant with Wall Street. Private equity became dominant. So talk about those players and the unimaginable places they've been able to go with the business. So if you think about REITs and private equity, we'll come back to CMBS, those are highly sophisticated people. Mm -hmm. Those are highly trained people. They still make mistakes, right? But they're highly trained. They're highly analytic. They're highly disciplined. Are there a handful of cowboys floating around? Of course, there are always a handful of cowboys, but there's too much money involved. It's almost like the old days of Las Vegas or something where you didn't need a whole lot of money. You right. could throw up a little. At some point, you needed too much money. You had to go to sophisticated, legitimate money, right? The cowboys couldn't make it. And the cowboys now... Because they still do exist. They're the ones who build buildings locally, maybe, but also they're relying on institutional capital, which is keeping them within the guardrails of real business. Got to keep them within the guardrails. You're not dealing with Bill, the local banker of Lima First Bank. You're dealing with city. And city's got nine layers of approvals. Mm -hmm. And if you don't give them the information to meet their nine layers of approval, you're dealing with Blackstone or Starwood. If you don't give them the information that meets their nine layers of approval, you're just not going to make it, right? Mm -hmm. Look, if people give... Well, Blackstone, I think, just announced a $20 billion for their newest fund. People who give you $20 billion deserve to be taken with respect Mm -hmm. in terms of analysis and reporting. And one of the reasons Blackstone has been so successful is that they give it the respect it deserves, Mm -hmm. as opposed to a cowboy who says, hey, I found the money. You know, one of the reasons Sam Zell's been so successful is he gives it the respect it deserves. Mm And treats it with the respect it deserves. And you can go across the very sternly, all the ones. So private equity and REITs imposed on the equity side, you have to be professional. You don't have to be as professional as they are necessarily, but you've got to be professional. As the banks consolidated from a bunch of little local banks into major financial institutions, 
you had to deal with them and you had to be more sophisticated, more analytic, more data driven. That's an ongoing process. It'll just continue now. Mm-hmm. And all we did was help it along its way and provide a framework. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because if I think of the global financial crisis, it wasn't a 10 to 15 year, it wasn't a 10 year, whatever the period was, that wiped out an industry, the SNL crisis might actually took the industry to the next level. Global financial yep. crisis, I don't think, had that level of change for our industry, but it only paused. It didn't kill anything. That's correct. It didn't kill it. People got trained in some different things, and they got trained on, oh, yeah, the trees don't grow to the sky. Sometimes right. you have more money than brains. There are always lessons to be learned. So it's not like it's perfect, But it's a long way from where it was. It's really unrecognizable Uh in that the very, very best firms of yesteryear, it's almost like if you took an automobile from 35 years ago and you put it on the road today, even though it was the best automobile on the road 35 years ago, technologically, it would not be a very, wouldn't get good mileage, it wouldn't ride very quiet, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the same thing is true if you'd have taken Jerry Hines's organization or Simon's organization or Taubman's organization or Boston Properties organization of 1986, mm-hmm. which were the best organizations. Right. They pale compared to their own organizations today. Mm-hmm. And to even run-of-the-mill organizations today in the same way a car from 35 years ago or 33 years ago pales. We talked about the transition being information. Interesting. We didn't use the word information technology because I think that the first transition was we transparency. We knew what was going on. But then the second transition, I think in every sector, becomes information technology, still the information word, but a different thing transforming where it may go next and has been going. But the technology in a way Uh is of zero value if you don't believe you need information. Uh Uh And that's why to me, the real fundamental change was the value of information and the ability to try to systematically analyze it. Then data management, modern data technology, helps you achieve that. But if you didn't have those two elements, you could have all the technology in the world and it wouldn't help you. If you don't value it, why do I care about data management techniques and data technology if I don't value data? Right. I'm thinking of data about helping make investment decisions at the highest level, and then I'm thinking about data about your portfolio, which heretofore was available once a year or maybe once a month, but now may be available every five seconds or you know every hour to refresh who's looking at my apartment building or who's looking at my apartment, who's buying and why. What you're describing also underscores the need to first value it is that if I don't value knowing what's happening at my apartments, whether it's available by the minute, the hour, the day, the month, the week, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. 
once I value it, then I start getting into the business of giving the cost and difficulty of assembling it and my ability to analyze it on the other side, how much and how often. (laughs) That's why the real breakthrough to me was the value of information. Totally true. The acceptance of the value of information and the acceptance of the value of analyzing it. And now I'm not trying to minimize the data technology we all use. Now it's simply about how much better is the shovel, right? How much better is the shovel? It's interesting though, because in the old days that you're describing, information wasn't available. So you make a decision to buy a building based on your guts with like semi-information. And now there's such data to figure out the value of that property because you know every lease, every tenant, every piece of Absolutely. And you tend to avoid markets. One last part. The value of information is shown by you tend to avoid markets where you can't do that. Right. So in the old days, all markets were the same in an odd way, right? That none of them had much information. And today, if in a world that values information, knows how to analyze it, and has management tools to deal with it, if there isn't information, that market is at a severe disadvantage, severe disadvantage in terms of attracting capital. Which is the lifeblood. Right. But also the lifeblood, I think, is that there's some information arbitrage, which is if I can gain insights to that place that's too foggy for others to see, then I get better yields, better returns, and I have a competitive advantage here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's change subject a bit because we're going to wrap up soon. One is if we look out another 20 years, now that this foundation is here for this industry that now makes sense in the world, what are the things that would surprise us in 20 years looking back today up to 20 years from now? What would be as shockers? Any sense of that? Well, I think one of the things that will be shocking is how much older a lot of people are going to be still being very productive. Uh Very productive. Not just working when I say productive, but being very productive. Uh That will change the business. It's going to change the business in a lot of ways. I'll give you a trivial example. I haven't got the answer to what I'm about to pose, Uh but I know it's true. The baby boom, the leading edge of which is 71 years old at this point, that's normally defined as 71 years old, is the richest, highest wealth, highest income group in the history of society. Uh And they're going to live longer than any other generation has before. And they're going to live longer and healthier. Now, they're going to do something with those years and money. And real estate follows money. So think of shopping, for example. We have normally, over the last 40 years or 50 years, thought of shopping centers being about satisfying the needs of, quote, families as traditionally defined and young people, Mm -hmm. right? All you have to do is go to a shopping center. They largely are satisfying the needs of young people and families because historically that's been where, quote, the money is. Now imagine the next 20 years that you pose and the baby boom lives until they're 88 Mm -hmm. or 89. Mm -hmm. Current life expectancy for them is about 82 if they're still alive today, is about until about 82. Let's assume they live six more years, and all of those six years are healthy. That is, the last year of their life is still going to be unhealthy, but the extra six are all going to be healthy. Okay. God bless. They got more money than you ever thought 
anybody in the world had, mm-hmm. and they have more time, how are they going to use it? Are they going to use it to work? If they use it to work, we're going to need more office space than we demographically predict mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. right? If they're going to use it to shop, we need shopping centers, shopping facilities, shopping capabilities that are designed for what those people want. Mm-hmm. Now, start with something as trivial as when you restriped your parking lot four years ago and you made the striping narrower, you may as well put a sign out front saying, if you're over 55, we don't want you here mm-hmm. because they can't fit. They can't get out of the car. Mm-hmm. And if you can't get out of your car, why would you go there to shop? Uh-huh. So there's a million things about that. Where are they going to want to live? Because that's going to determine where the warehouses are going to be. Where are they going to want to live? That's going to determine where I'm going to have both regular housing and senior housing. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact we've had seven weeks a year added to life expectancy for the last 120 years. And basically, people constantly say, well, it can't go on, and it continues to go on. There's been a slight drop in the last two years to that due to opioid deaths of young people. But if you're not an opioid person, it's going right on, Mm -hmm. just continuing right on. Mm -hmm. And genetic breakthroughs, if anything, will accelerate it. Right. You know, if you can regenerate your knees, if you can regenerate your heart. So 20 years from now, you're going to have people living my belief is somewhere six to 15 years longer than today we think they'll live. Right. What? And they're going to have money mm-hmm. and they're going to have time and they're going to be healthy. Uh-huh. They're not going to be healthy the last year of their life. They're just going to be healthy. What are they going to do? Uh-huh. That's going to change a lot, a lot. And I don't know the answers. I know the question. I don't know the answer. It's funny. Uh, 18 months ago, my granddaughter was born, and my stepson's father is a futurist. And so when he was there and welcomed our granddaughter, Issa, to the world, he said, welcome, Issa, you're going to live to be 120. Futurist. I believe it. Oh, absolutely true. Think of Blackstone. Raising 20 billion is just getting somebody to say an extra zero. Right. On capital market side, there are decent economies of scale. Mm-hmm. So the industry will go to wherever that leads. And so I think you will just keep seeing bigger. That doesn't mean you won't see entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Think of the analogy being basketball. The guys are bigger, stronger, more muscular today than 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. because size matters. Mm-hmm. But you still have guys who are 6'2". Steph succeeding. Curry comes in and changes the world again. Exactly. So it's not like you can't succeed unless, but at the same token, that is the trend. You have more guys who look like LeBron James or Dwight Howard today mm-hmm. than 20 years ago. And I think 20 years from now, you'll have more that look like them, but they'll still be the small guy. I think real estate will be the same way. You'll have more that will be big. When I was at Rockefeller Center and we tried, and we were selling Rockefeller Center, I think mm-hmm. Zell had the largest real estate fund at the time, and I'm doing this all the time. I had he had six hundred million. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have six hundred million and you're not allowed to do more than about ten percent in one deal, mm-hmm. sixty million is the biggest equity check you can write. That's a hundred and eighty million dollar deal, just quick and dirty, right? right. Two to one debt. Yep, yep, yep. 
I think Apollo had about a four hundred million. I think Blackstone had about a four hundred million. I think Goldman had about a five hundred million. Today, 20. those are funds that you don't even think about that are four and five hundred million, right? They're not even mega. Then they were big. Then you had a REIT that might be three hundred to six hundred million. This is only twenty five years ago, right? right? So if you look forward you will still get some of that phenomenon yeah. happening. Yeah, and, and play with it for a second, and we're going to wrap up in a few minutes, but it's just interesting because, you know, I got off the phone this morning with a guy who wants to use us to hire a regional head for property management, and he has a portfolio in a part of the country that's doing smaller value-add deals, and he's buying, he has 4,000 units or whatever, right? Those people will always yep. exist. So that's the entrepreneur able to do more or less non-institutional business, although it's institutional dollars that are driving their debt. So it might be the barbell effect of the Blackstones and the huge behemoths are going to be out there and the Avalon Bays and the apartment business. But at the same time, there will be small owners, mom and pop owners. My daughter lives in this eight-unit apartment building in Berkeley. Yeah. The difference is, though, and you've seen it happen, if you go back 20, 25 years ago, the major office buildings, the major shopping centers in most cities were owned by families. Yep. The values just got too big. Again, I used the Vegas example of started out with some entrepreneurs and then the mob and then, but the numbers just got too big, mm -hmm. right? They don't have that much money. And so you slowly see more and more of that kind of portfolio just has to go to the more institutional side because the number's too big. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there'll always be items that are not that big a number. Mm hmm Absolutely true. So we need to wrap up. My last question is always, if you had five minutes with a young person getting into the business and saying, I foresee a career in real estate, help me think about it, what would your advice be? Read. Read. Read and read and read. R-E-A-D. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not just in real estate. That would be my first piece of advice. Read because real estate serves the economy and society, read about the economy, read about society. The better you understand the economy, the better you understand demography. It's not a cure-all, but the better you'll be, the more curious you are. And the second thing I'd say is look at property and ask why. Why was that building built that way when it was built? Would you build that building that way today if you started from scratch? Why? Why not? Mm -hmm. But if you don't start by asking why, you know, these buildings that are designed like the block letter E, mm -hmm. you know, they had the indentation yeah. mm -hmm. like a block letter E. If you look from above, you look down on it, it looks like a block letter E. And you go, well, why were they built that way as opposed to a, what we would do today? And the answer was ventilation. They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have HVAC. So you needed the ventilation and you went an office deep on either side. Everybody left their windows open. You had paper holders. You mm -hmm. go, oh, yeah, that's why they did it. Now, if you understand that, you can understand they were responding to the challenges of that moment. Understand why buildings, for better or worse, were built the way they were, and how would you do it different today and why? And I'm always surprised at how few people are readers mm -hmm. and how few people are curious, curious about why something's there. Be more curious, be more informed. 
would be my main advice for people going into the business. And I would not limit that to real estate. In our case, buildings are just so much easier to see and evaluate than a lot of other products. I I think curiosity is in short change in the world. It's always fascinating to me. If I had one piece of advice myself, it would be curiosity as well, which is drill down, drill down, wonder why. Don't just see what's on the surface, but understand it deeply. And that takes drilling, thinking, asking. Totally agree. Totally agree. And in fact, if you sort of ask among, I've had the great pleasure to know a lot of amazingly successful people in -hmm. in real estate and not just in real estate. And you say, well, what would be the traits that you would quickly see? Generally, the traits would be very high energy, very high curiosity levels, very high, as a result, reading and experiencing levels. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the other one that always, I think, surprises people, at least among the ones I've known, very high standards of integrity. Doesn't mean we always meet our own standards of integrity, but very high standards of integrity would also be a trait of those very successful people. It's interesting. And we've heard through the history of our podcast, the one theme that keeps coming up for me is it is that level of integrity. It's that level of intention. It's that level of understanding your organization, having a mission focusing, it often is not, I want to get rich, I want to get rich, or I want my company to get rich, be financially successful. It's let's fine tune and keep going in that direction better than anybody else. Totally, 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 absolutely. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.